Hello, I'm Lina Khmudu. Welcome to Health Chat. The World Health Organization has selected a South African health expert to represent the continent as it tries to formulate a so-called pandemic treaty. Former Director General in South Africa's Health Department and WHO Advisor, Dr. Precious Matsoso, will work with international health experts on the project. The initiative seeks to ensure that the world's response to the next pandemic is based firmly on justice, equality and affordability of medicines. Darren Taylor has more. During COVID-19, rich Western nations stockpiled vaccines and personal protective equipment leaving few to sometimes no supplies for poorer regions, especially Africa. Pharmaceutical firms also would not share vaccine recipes with Africa, so it couldn't manufacture its own jabs. Health activists say this caused thousands of unnecessary deaths. Dr. Precious Matsoso says the whole world, not only Africa, needs a new plan to respond justly and swiftly to the next pandemic. I have been a member of the independent panel on pandemic preparedness and response. And in the evaluation that we did, most member states, even those that have capacity, those that have resources, they were still not prepared. So we needed something to support the implementation of the international health regulations. Like, for instance, vaccine inequities are not addressed in the international health regulations. In her new position with the World Health Organization, Matsoso is now working with health experts from all other continents to draft a pandemic treaty for the globe. We cannot show preference from one group over the other. So there must be some form of balance, but recognizing that there are some regions that have been disproportionately affected by this COVID pandemic and that the inequities have been quite significant in our region. Speaking during an online briefing, Matsoso said there was agreement in initial meetings with her international colleagues that some issues are essential going forward. Firstly, we identified equity as an important issue because we saw the scramble for supplies, gross inequities for vaccines, diagnostics, and other therapeutic agents. The second one is about governance. We've seen problems of governance, not just at a national level, but globally within the international system. And thirdly, we also recognized that there was gross underfunding for preparedness. So we'd like to have a sustainable financing model, both at a global and local level. Matsoso says she'll meet with health experts from every African country to hear what they'd like included in the treaty. She says it would be reasonable to assume that African nations especially would want to include clauses that try to ensure Africa gets equal access to vaccines during the next global disease outbreak. We must still agree on whether it must be binding, but most member states had expressed interest in making sure that it's binding. We have to establish as to which part of the WHO constitution should we rely on in formulating this legal instrument. As some have said it should be a treaty, others said it should be a convention. She and her colleagues expect to have a working draft of the treaty ready by August to be debated by WHO members. If they do, she said, the treaty could be formally adopted next year.
Others in the international health sector say a more realistic target is for the document to be adopted at the WHO Assembly in 2024. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Researchers are using an evolving monitoring system to track signs of coronavirus in sewage, which they say could potentially capture brewing infections. Here is more. The stinky stuff that dwells underneath the Michigan State University campus is no longer just simply waste. It has become a public health tool. Colleges across the U.S. that are grappling with the coronavirus are testing sewage for the presence of genetic material from the virus. It's being used on campus as early warning and communication. So to let the students know that in their dorm, there's virus excretion, even if they don't have cases. Experts say it can be an inexpensive way to monitor people who may not even know they are sick yet. So to be able to detect an asymptomatic or prior to clinical test positive individual, right, through the sewage surveillance program is important to avoid major events or major um, health crisis issues in that facility or building or a dorm, etc. The Troy, Michigan-based company partnered with Oakland University to set up a laboratory at the school to test wastewater samples for the presence of the virus. Researchers say the results can't yet reliably show how many infected people live in a community, but they can indicate if that number is rising or falling, and that indication can arrive days before such trends show up by standard testing or hospitalizations. Candice Miller is the Public Works Commissioner in Macomb County, Michigan. I mean, after all, we're all biological beings. Really, it's not much different than a blood test. When you go to the bathroom, you're shedding virus. And you could, you could be asymptomatic, but yet you continue to shed the virus. Miller and other officials hope the lessons learned from the sewage testing efforts for COVID-19 can be applied to future health concerns. The U.S. government officials warned that the African population will continue to face increased food prices and shortages, which threatens the lives of millions in the continent so long that Russia continues to wage war against its neighbor, Ukraine, in which Africa gets much of its wheat and cooking oil. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's Africa News Center in Nairobi, Kenya. Speaking to journalists online Tuesday, the U.S. representative to the U.N. agencies in Rome, Cindy McCain, said Ukraine is the world's breadbasket and the attack on its land and people is raising hunger around the globe. The Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that as many as 13 million more people worldwide will be pushed into food insecurity as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The truth of the matter is, Putin's war forces us to take from the hungry to feed the starving. As long as Russia continues this brutal campaign, innocent people are going to pay the price. Ukraine annually exports 40% of its wheat and corn to Africa. The World Food Programme feeds 138 million people in 80 countries, including Ethiopia and Nigeria, with the grain it gets from the European country. With Ukrainian supplies cut off, food prices are on the rise across Africa. Meanwhile, increasing energy costs has driven up prices of fertilizers, such as phosphate used in food production. Jim Banhat, assistant to the administrator for USAID's Bureau for Resilience and Food Security, says the high cost of living will make life difficult for more families in Africa. Reduced food and 
food and supplies and subsequent price increases in these commodities make it harder for farmers in Zambia to access input they need to plant their crops and for families in Malawi to, to buy nutritious food for their children. So if not mitigated, these price increases could result in significant increases in global poverty, hunger, and malnutrition, particularly in regions like sub-Saharan Africa. The International Committee for the Red Cross says more than 346 million Africans face a food security crisis, making families skip meals every day. The ICRC says it will ramp up its operations in 10 countries to combat the food shortages. The head of ICRC's global operations, Dominic Stilhart, says the war in Ukraine has impacted their humanitarian work. The other impact which is perhaps uh, more indirect is that this also, the rising food and fuel prices, as well as supply chains that are uh, seriously uh, affected by the situation in Ukraine, they also have an effect on our own uh, capacity to scale up. Uh, Lead times are going to be longer, uh, for instance, for food imports, and that is also why we are increasingly resorting to cash uh, uh, distributions and uh, using cash vouchers to uh, support uh, uh, people in the various countries in which we are operating. Persistent drought, poor rains in some parts of Africa and conflicts have also exacerbated Africa's food situation. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. You are listening to Health Chat on Voice of America. It's time for a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hello, this is James Barton, Managing Editor and host of VOA's Daybreak Africa show. Join us Monday through Friday at 03, 04, 05 and 0600 hours UTC as we bring you the latest Africa news, features and sports. You can also be a part of Daybreak Africa through our mail segment by sending your comments to daybreakafrica at voanews.com. Or you can call us on 001-202-205-9942. And when you hear the Voice of America identification, press the number 25 to leave us your message. That's Daybreak Africa at 03, 04, 05, and 0600 hours UTC right here on VOA Africa. Welcome back to Health Chat. Clinical trials are critical steps in the development of vaccines and therapeutic. There are studies performed by researchers in humans primarily to find out, among other things, if a new treatment like a drug or vaccine is safe and effective in people. To find out more about the process of clinical trials in Africa and their safety, I caught up with Dr. Bartholomew Diki Akamori, Regional Advisor for Regulations of Vaccines with the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa and in charge of the Secretariat of the African Vaccine Regulatory Forum. Professor Diki Akamori, thank you so much for joining us. First, uh, would you please explain uh, what cr- clinical trials are and why they are so important. Thank you very much for having me. Clinical trials are very, very important in um, helping to develop health products, to develop products that we need for our health and well-being, 
products to either treat diseases or products to help prevent disease or products to even help us identify whether we have a disease or not, that is for diagnostics. Now, clinical trials by themselves are essentially studies which are designed carefully, managed in a very controlled manner to ensure that uh, products can be evaluated in humans as study participants, um, ensuring that the safety of the participants is assured, while at the same time ensuring that you're able to obtain the necessary data or information that is required for the licensure or of the product so it can be made available to many more people. Now, it's important to point out that uh, clinical trials have within them an inbuilt system of quality assurance, quality control, to ensure that they follow all the principles uh, of research, they follow all the guidelines which have been developed to protect research subjects and at the same time protect the data which comes out of the research. So, in effect, clinical trials are not simply uh, experiments that you take lightly. They are experiments that require caution. They are carried out by people who are qualified and licensed to do these kinds of studies, and they provide all the safety around the subjects who participate in them. There is a growing resentment on, on the continent and really fear of clinical trials, uh, and COVID-19 has uh, highlighted many people's mistrust. Uh, as critics say, Africans are often uh, seen and taken as guinea pigs during those trials. Uh, talk, to, talk to us about that. What is your reaction? Well, I mean, it's most unfortunate that, um, you know, some people make comments about, um, you know, clinical trials, which as I said, constitutes an important aspect of the development of public health interventions. People take it lightly and make such comments. And to tell you the truth, far from this, within the continent of Africa, the systems are in place, the people, the regulators, and the ethics committees are in place, uh, they are very well trained. They are very uh, effective in their reviews and the oversight that they provide for clinical trials on the continent. Now, gone are the days when clinical trials could be taken lightly and people could uh, come from outside the continent, go into any country, a small town, village, and conduct studies on, um, on people, on participants, human participants. Now it is impossible to do that because each country has a national regulatory authority and this national regulatory authority is mandated legally to be responsible for ensuring that all clinical trials are properly regulated, first of all, that the sponsors, investigators, uh, 
fully comply with the requirements for a clinical trial, submit a full application which fulfills all the requirements of the country, make sure that this uh, application is reviewed by experts in the countries, and then when approval is also given, that these sponsors and investigators have the responsibility of informing the regulatory authority periodically of what is going. And in fact, that's because it's, it's, it's a mechanism to ensure that safety of the participants is assured. And there are ethics committees as well, which are well organized, which are very uh, well um, uh, resourced. They have the experts, they have the capacity to review clinical trials and also provide their approvals and at the same time provide oversight. So it is indeed on the continent today there is the African Vaccine Regulatory Forum. Now, this is a network of all the regulatory authorities and all the ethics committees within the country. They have come together. They have provided for themselves a mechanism by which they work together. They ensure that the clinical trials are well regulated. They also ensure that safety is paramount, the safety of participants is paramount, and that is useful for the approval of products that can be used by the wider population and to help address public health priorities. I was listening to a patient who enrolled in the clinical trial for COVID-19 here in the United States, and she was talking about the type of scrutiny uh, she went through in terms of her health, the type of tests that she had to, to do, to go through, and how the researchers and everybody involved was taking care of her in very specific detail. So there's a, a clinical trial ongoing in South Africa right now, which is in collaboration with Oxford, Oxford University. What is the, the process with um, people in Africa with these trials? To How much care, how much scrutiny, how much... Um, assistance do they receive during the, the trials when they participate? Let me first begin by saying that clinical trials should be the same regardless of where they take place because there are international guidelines, there are international uh, declarations, there are international uh, commitments on human subject research which are respected all over the world, which should be implemented all over the world. So, uh, in principle, there should be no difference whatsoever between the rights of a subject or a participant in research in the United States and a participant in research on the African continent. They all have the same rights um, to the protection, confidentiality, and all the other benefits that uh, accrue from research. Now, the clinical trial application must contain all that the researchers intend to do. It must include the care which is going to be given to all the participants in the research. And indeed, that standard of care is critical, is vital. Now, the standard of care may vary from developed countries to low- and middle-income countries, 
based on infrastructure, based on you know the availability of specialists and experts to look after patients or subjects. That is understandable. But within a country, you cannot deny research participants uh, the basic standard of care which prevails within that country. And I expect that in South Africa that the investigators will uh, abide by this. They also have the benefit of the guidelines which were developed by the African Vaccine Regulatory Forum or AVRF uh, and other guidelines by the World Health Organization to ensure that they comply with the basic requirements of uh, clinical trials uh, as it pertains all over the world. So what is your message to those who are uh, still skeptical, still remembering cases where, for example, in 2005, there was an HIV trial of tenofovir that was highly criticized uh, for reasons such as ethics and safety? Yeah, thank you. As you, you rightly pointed out, um, you know, the history has, you know, bad examples of um, research um, and it's not just on our continent. It's actually global in other countries as well. We've had in the United States of America, there were studies uh, many, many years ago, which also violated the rights of research subjects, you know, where research was not properly conducted, where research participants were not uh, given the care they required. And indeed, in some cases, some harm was done to research participants. That's the experiment, for example. Yes, exactly. So, but now let me, I just want to assure people that now in Africa, the systems are in place to safeguard and protect the rights of research subjects. That the expertise is available, uh, that the infrastructure is in place, and that there are also legal, legally established um, uh, institutions that look over research, that give oversight to research. And so people should feel more confident about participating in research, uh, knowing that, first of all, it brings uh, value because at the end, you are helping to develop a product which is going to be used uh, within the same country, within the same continent, to help protect lives of people, to improve the health and well-being of individuals. So they should feel confident to participate in research. They should know that there are watchdogs, as I may call it, you know, in terms of regulatory authorities and ethics committees who will ensure that they are protected while they are participating in the research. Why is it important for the African continent to participate in the global search for new therapies? Why is it important for clinical trials to also happen on the African continent? Well, yeah, I mean, this is, this, it's, it's important to, to stress that when clinical trials take place, they take place in, uh, you know, in a country, in a population, that the product is actually being evaluated within that population. Now, if Africans leave themselves, you know, uh, stay out of the evaluation of products, then these products don't actually get tested in African populations within African settings or context. And that then means that when the product is eventually introduced, 
you may know, you may never know about, you know, events that could, uh, you know, arise in special populations within the continent who may not be the same as populations elsewhere where the product was evaluated clinically. So it's important for us to participate in these uh, studies so that at the end, the product which is licensed would be one that is suitable for our use. It will be one that, you know, actually sits well with us, that can give us the protection if it's a vaccine without uh, giving us any uh, adverse events. Okay, and finally, if you could just uh, kind of uh, summarize the different steps that are involved in a clinical trial. When you want to start um, studying a product, obviously, um, even before you go to to uh, clinical trials in humans, you need to uh, first ascertain that there's a potential for this product to achieve what it's intended to do. You need to ensure that there is efficacy, there's evidence of efficacy that this product will work, whether it's a vaccine or it's a therapeutic product. Now, you also need to have some indication about the safety you may not entirely know how to take it is in humans, but certainly there are sometimes animal models that we could use, mice, you know, we could use uh, rabbits. If there is an animal model, this would also have been done, some evidence obtained about, you know, uh, what it does when it's used in other animals. And then when it comes to the first in human studies, you want to expose as few people as possible. You also want to expose people who are healthy and who have no underlying, you know, these conditions. And also, typically, you want to look for people who are between the ages of 18 to 40 years old. And of course, we start with those small numbers. And that's what we call a phase one clinical trial. Then you move on to uh, a phase two. Now the phase one, as I said, is you know is done in you know around 40 to 60 people, and the objective of the phase one is to obtain initial safety data. How safe it is in, is in in humans? How safe is the product? Then phase two, you go on to trying to ascertain the safety again, but in a larger number hundreds of people, but at the same time, looking at whether it does have some efficacy. Is it, does it help the body to make the products that indicate protection? That is, does it induce the production of antibodies that can protect? Then you move on to the third phase, what we call the Three, where you're dealing with trying to gather the evidence to show that this product actually works and that it deserves to be licensed for use by all others apart from those who took part in the clinical trial. And in the phase three, you are now looking at going to thousands, tens of thousands of, of participants you still look at safety, but you look more at the efficacy. 
the ability of the product to protect if it's a vaccine, or the ability of the product to uh, provide a cure or a treatment of a disease which is a therapeutic. So at the end of the phase three, the information which is gathered is then submitted to a regulatory authority, which then goes on to evaluate the information, the data, ask many questions about the data. And once they are satisfied, they will then do a marketing authorization or a license for the product to be used uh, in the general population or to be marketed. Professor Dr. Akinmori, thank you so much for joining us today and enlightening us on the process of clinical trials. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Bartolome Diki Akamori, Regional Advisor for Regulation of Vaccines with the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa. That's all for this edition of Health Chat. For the latest news and coverage on the coronavirus pandemic, visit voanews.com. Thank you all for joining us and special thanks to all our affiliate stations throughout Africa for carrying Health Chat. I'm your host, Lenore Mudu in Washington, with producer Dan Brown. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and strive to make every day a healthy day. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced that U.S. diplomat will return to Ukraine this week, a move officials are characterizing as a strong message of solidarity from the United States. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America.